Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 1st of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson. Um, well, we're back. We for are. The autumn term. Uh, school has restarted. School has restarted, so more reports on the madhouse that's uh, UK. Uh, well, yes. And of course, uh, what's happened while we've been away, Afghanistan seems to be the only thing that's been going on. Uh, yes. Fascinating. Yes. Major, major change of topic for the nation. Yeah. So Joe Biden is defending the extraordinary success of the Afghanistan uh, evacuation amid criticism. Uh, well, most of the criticism seems to be coming from the UK government. And hopefully Alex will have something to say about that in a second. Uh, but uh, well, the question is how much of it was to do with Joe Biden and uh, probably not very much because uh, as over while we were away, uh, he, well, the Express here said, appeared to fall asleep during a meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Bennett. And uh, well, uh, Haaretz, I didn't notice, were saying that this was untrue, that he hadn't actually fallen asleep. He just looked like he was falling asleep or he looked like he was asleep. Um, so the question is, you know, how much of this was Biden's decision? We'll come on to that in a second. In the meantime, I thought uh, Tony Blair's uh, uh, response to this was was probably the best of any that I saw. Uh, he said to, today, I can't remember when he actually said this, it was during the break anyway. Today, we're in a mood that seems to regard the bringing of democracy as a utopian delusion, an intervention virtually of any sort as a fool's errand. Uh, we didn't need to do it. That's we didn't need to leave Afghanistan. We chose to do it. We did it in obedience to an imbecilic political slogan about ending the forever wars, uh, as if our engagement in 2021 was remotely comparable to our commitment 20 or even 10 years ago in circumstances in which troop numbers had declined to a minimum and no allied soldier had lost their life in combat for 18 months. Um, so, Alex, maybe I could say welcome to the programme. Um, the response from many of the uh, British establishment figures, if Tony Blair can be described as that now, uh, has been quite marked. Um, but as we'll see in a second, it shouldn't really have come as a surprise to anybody um, because the negotiations with the Taliban have been going on for a very long time. I mean, since uh, halfway through the Trump uh, presidency. Um, so... Why is anybody surprised about this? It all seems a bit fishy. It all seems a bit contrived. There's got to be uh, some attempt to distract from something there, Mike, uh, because as long ago as 10 years, uh, Ron Paul, and he was just the most vocal of many uh, in the US political scene, but there were some in Britain too, was saying, if we do not pull out now, 2011, we will still be there in 10 years. Very foreseeable. Uh, the bitter cynicism uh, of Tony Blair's tone, as you've just cited there, I'm afraid it's hard to interpret any other way than that Britain, by being in the big league, by being in the big boys club, takes it upon itself that some of its troops will just have to be sent out as world policemen on a kind of roulement basis, a permanent rotational basis of, of a battalion. And this, of course, is completely unlawful uh, because troops are for the defence of the realm and have to be agreed every parliamentary period in the, in the, until the very recent past every year in a new act of parliament so that we don't get tyrannised. One of the provisions of the Bill of Rights was that this would come into effect so that we didn't have a standing army. The kernel of it, of course, is that Blair is more at home in the internationalist, globalist and the EU model 
of uh, the ownership of troops, which is that they are owned effectively by corporations and international bodies, and they can be pledged permanently together with warships and air assets and space assets and cyber assets and intelligence assets in a way that's not lawful in the British constitution. It's only Britain within the European media scene, as far as I can see, which is spinning this line to its domestic audience now via mainstream media, that this was a betrayal of us and our military interests on the continent, although certain nations like Norway and the Netherlands were very heavily invested in uh, sending troops to Afghanistan. Uh, there hasn't been any line of that. There's been much more concentration on civilian deaths, a rather more, I think, accurate and, and humane way of looking at the situation. So if people have only been listening to mainstream talking heads in Britain about the, the sad tragedy of Afghanistan, well, it certainly is a sad human tragedy, an incomparable one, but I'm afraid entirely foreseeable. You know, as far back as 2005, when I was on shift work for the first time as a young GCHQ officer, we were there, uh, put on a special operation for the protection of uh, uh, SAS uh, troops who were accompanying the Afghan National Army in eradicating the poppy fields. And within a couple of hours of the SAS uh, accompanying the ANA, the local troops, uh, newly recruited, of course, into a poppy field area, either in the northeast in Nangarhar or in the south in Helmand, uh, the opium factories we could see on various intelligence assets were starting to cook drugs again. This has got to be, well, I know you saw similar things in the city of London at the same time. It's got to have been a foreseeable plan. And from the beginning, the West was in uh, Afghanistan militarily to ensure that the drugs got to Europe to keep the financial system afloat. This was well known by people who were great dissidents and outsiders 15, 10 years ago, but I'm afraid they're now the plausible mainstream. Um, well, we're going to be coming on to that issue of drugs in just a second. But just before we do that, um, this is the Telegraph's headline this morning. MI6 holds talks with Taliban to prevent terrorists plotting attacks from Afghanistan. But my question, Alex, is, uh, you know, who exactly uh, has been airlifted out of Afghanistan into Europe and into the United Kingdom? Um, and, you know, are we, do you think, are we going to see um, a, a re-igniting of the types of so-called terrorism that we've seen uh, over the last 20 years uh, with uh, happening within the UK, more Islamic terrorism starting to, to, to come up to the surface again, um, which we basically haven't seen since COVID, strangely enough. It's almost as if the government is, was too busy with, a, with another uh, agenda and didn't have time to run any terrorist attacks in the UK, but maybe I'm just being too cynical there. I'm afraid, God forbid, I do foresee the likelihood of more shots and bangs in Western Europe and North America and Australasia, uh, because we haven't had those for a couple of years. The script of Islamic terrorism has been somewhat retired. But as we'll be covering from Switzerland shortly, there are these nebulous claims of uh, COVID-related terrorism. That doesn't have a, a, a bogus Islamic angle attached to it as yet, but who knows. Uh, it is likely to swing back into action, because in order to uh, have one of these waves of terrorist threats, you need uh, an inscrutable nation. The more inscrutable, the better, the less the intelligence officers, let alone the general public, really know about the culture and mentality of a particular country. And Afghanistan is really the back of beyond to all the major powers, certainly the Western ones. The more plausible it is uh, to wind up a few uh, mind-fiddled or mind-controlled people, let them loose in the West. This happened with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group in Manchester, of course and uh, then plausibly deny that it was anything to do with uh, Western spookery. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, anyone in any doubt that, uh, that this should have been understood, um, this is the Council on Foreign Relations from uh, March 2020, and their headline there is uh, 
US-Taliban peace deal want to know. And there was a whole lot of coverage of the fact that the United States and the Taliban were in discussions at that time. Uh, now, there has been relatively little in the press in, in recent months up until this point, but suddenly uh, the US has, and the UK have withdrawn completely. Um, in the meantime, then Alex was talking about drugs. Well, the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, Taliban moved to ban opium production uh, in Afghanistan. So already they're talking about banning opium production um, and uh, replacing the opium production in Helmand, for example, with uh, with well, food, actually, strangely enough, you know, occasionally sort of need food. But uh, this was the BBC's uh, coverage, uh, Afghanistan, how much opium is produced and what's the Taliban's record. Um, and as we scroll down through this, well, they uh, show the uh, graph, which comes from the uh, United Nations Office uh, for Drugs. Uh, and uh, well, we've shown this graph many, many times ourselves. Uh, showing that when the Tal Taliban um, was effectively in control of Af Afghanistan in 2001, uh, Afghan opium production fell to almost z zero. Uh, and it was only after uh, the United States and the UK, and particularly the UK and Helmand province, because we had responsibility for that area, uh, got back into control of those areas that the uh, poppy production um, started increasing again. Um, so later on, they say, they say, what is the Taliban's record? Um, and they say, the BBC, this is, at first, opium poppy cultivation was substantially under, uh, was, sorry, rose substantially under Taliban rule from around 41,000 hectares in 1998 to more than 64,000 in 2000, uh, in the year 2000, that is, according to the US State Department. Uh, but in July 2000, the Taliban banned opium poppy uh, farming. Uh, and, uh, and so that, just strangely enough, seemed to be uh, around the time that uh, the West decided to, to invade. Um, and uh, as we say, opium production um, was pushed back up again. But then uh, there's other stuff going on as well, because uh, now that the Taliban, certainly China, has been working very hard over the last uh, number of months to convince the, the Taliban um, that they should be working together with China on the Belt and Road. Uh, now, the now the Taliban is back in control. That seems to be starting to happen. Um, and uh, so it's all a bit it's all a bit confusing, Alex, in a sense, because uh, we've got things which uh, are all about proper economic development being discussed. We've got the Taliban talking about stopping opium production once again. Is this why Britain is uh, particularly upset with this decision by the U.S.? Because, uh, in fact, the opium trade is decimated by it, but equally uh, there's economic development potential there. Well, quite apart from the untapped mineral wealth of Afghanistan and the whole of landlocked Central Asia, which is well known, and the oil routes, which, as with Syria, played a very large part, it's not a cliche to say it, a very large part in the, uh, the origin, the casus belli of the war, uh, you have just the, the geographical location. Even if Afghanistan was bare rocks with no interesting subsoil, you would still have its location linking China and Russia, well, from east to west China with uh, the Middle East and Europe, north to south Russia with India and uh, the Bay of Bengal. So that is clearly prime real estate for motorways, railways and things that Afghanistan has, of course, not had in any measure. But, you know, those of short memory or, or younger might not know that back in the 1960s and 70s, before the communist Najibullah regime, uh, which the Soviets were you know, prompted and triggered into uh, invading and supporting. And speaking of Brzezinski, the uh, 
the key, uh, the, the kingpin of uh, US deep state policy, boasted about this, that he'd given the Soviets another Vietnam by enticing them in. Before that Najibullah regime, there was already, under the king of Afghanistan, a lot of this economic planning, together with the more tokenistic things that the Western media pay attention to, such as women in short skirts going to university and not being harassed, the things that we're told we went to Afghanistan in 2001 to protect, and now we're being told we won't have them anymore. So th there's been a multi-decade agenda. Some parties, like China in its more recent incarnation, have been more interested in that. Uh, others have not. Uh, we should also point out that the Taliban what, we, what you just discussed there, Mike, was the economic unity uh, or, or planning of the, of the Taliban government. The Taliban is a disparate entity, and like Al-Qaeda in the say, case of uh, Arab countries, really only has an identity in the English language as a singular item. Any continental language correctly reports the Taliban with a plural verb, the Taliban have, the Taliban are, because Taliban is a plural noun. Very early in my GCHQ days, there was one occasion when a transcriber said to me, ah, here's a Talib on the line. And I said, what's a Talib? Oh, yes, of course, singular in, uh, in Arabic. So Taliban is the students. It's plural, just like Al-Qaeda means the database. And we, we don't have time to get into the ins and outs of it, but it is a disparate group, as General Sir Richard Dannett, head of the British Army, said the other day, country boys. He's hinting there, and that was your point again, Mike, that economically, Britain would prefer them to be a bunch of hicks that just hand over to the next Western-backed warlords. And I think his prime worry that he's subconsciously uh, giving vent to there is that they will learn to be more than hicks and actually realise the value of their precious metal and oil reserves. Uh, and not only precious metal and oil, but also rare earths, um, which, of course, as we move towards COP26 and this pressure to, to get everybody onto electric cars and, and everything else become much more valuable. Um, and uh, so, yes, Afghanistan definitely has uh, plenty to offer there. Uh, but uh, the BBC wants to make sure we're focused on uh, how nasty the regime is. Now, I'm not uh, for any I'm not suggesting that they're suddenly becoming uh, nice guys in any way. Uh, and I think there's a lot to unpack here and a lot to discuss. And I'm not uh, attempting to put forward a particular narrative as such. I'm, I'm simply uh, showing what, what we're seeing in the press at the moment and, and, and really highlighting topics for future discussion. Um, but here we've got Afghanistan's Uyghurs, fear of the Taliban, uh, and now China too. Um, so uh, again, we're, we're presenting a narrative of, of a, a, an oppressed minority uh, that we've got to be uh, uh, supporting. Um, but I just want to remind everybody what uh, the BBC had said about the heroin industry in the past. Uh, this is from July last year. Um, what the heroin industry can teach us about solar power. And this was uh, solar power, of course, being in the sense of the sun uh, growing, being the power source to grow the poppies. And this was the, the quote that I just thought was the best uh, from that, uh, that article. The heroin industry is perhaps the purest example of capitalism on the planet. I just thought that was spectacular. Yeah. And, and more than one hidden meaning. I, I just wanted to comment on the fact that a couple of days ago we had the, the BBC expressing surprise and concern that the Americans were pulling out and it appeared that the British, uh, we did not have military capability to carry on the operation and secure the airport or indeed run all the flights to get people out. Um, I could just come back to, to you on this, Alex, but it was as though the BBC was, was just completely shocked um, that we no longer have a real military capability. And of course, the moment the Americans said they were going to pull out, that meant that we, we 
uh, were left with nothing, no real capability on the ground. Uh, BBC seems to feel that every time we're operating with Americans, we're doing it uh, on an equal footing, which of course is complete nonsense. The BBC is an egregious example of this, but the new crop of uh, young uh, militarily inexperienced defence correspondents for the broadsheets, such as the Times, are similar. You've covered that, Brian, in the past. They are spun what they are uh, wanted, expected to believe about the capabilities and, and philosophy of the British military by, by the, uh, um, the media-related officers who, who control the embedded correspondence. And that's the only view of the situation they have. Some of them who know the country very well, um, some of that, the mainstream reporters, I mean, who have uh, operated in Kabul for a while, are more culpable than that. Uh, a very good interview by Vanessa Beely with um, Lucy Morgan Edwards the other day, a really good expert on Afghanistan who's speaking very frankly about the, the lies of the, the mainstream media in this current situation. Uh, that just came out the other day. And uh, uh, Lee, uh, Lucy Morgan Edwards pointed out specifically that Lise Doucette, the well-known Canadian um, internationalist, as it were, who, who she makes a point of, of being a globalist, who um, has reported from Syria and Afghanistan for the BBC and others, uh, knew Afghanistan far too well to be genuinely shocked about the collapse in the way that she feigned. And I think Lucy Morgan Edwards suggested that that was even true of these correspondents' knowledge of the British military. In many ways, it's comparable to how the British military was meant to hold on to two southern Iraqi provinces after the 2003 invasion around Basra. And again, the blurb that the British military was giving to uh, its own bubble and to the media at the time was, uh, we don't need as much armaments and training and toughness as the Americans in, in the north of, Af of Iraq. Uh, because in our province, in both Afghanistan and Iraq, that we're responsible for, we are helmets off and softly, softly and friendly. And the military men knew it was a load of junk uh, and bunkered this, but they went with it anyway. So a self-delusion, as Lucy Morgan Edwards says in her recent interview with Vanessa Bealey, self-delusion has taken hold. And particularly in Britain, the military guys will only speak to each other. They will not listen to civilian experts who are in country or who have lived in the country for many years or native. They will only speak to each other. OK, thanks for that. And my, my only other comment is, of course, the Americans have revealed that some $89 billion worth of equipment has been left behind. At the moment, we can't see what the value of the UK equipment that, that's been left behind. This appears to be um, something that uh, the government would rather the, pub, the general public doesn't know, but presumably it's a substantial amount of equipment. And I think the figure for UK equipment left in Iraq was about a billion or one and a half billion. I don't know whether you've seen anything on those figures, Alex. I haven't, but it wouldn't surprise me. The first thing that came to my mind when this collapse, engineered collapse or, or, or arms up in horror narrative started about a week and a half ago was uh, this would be another case of Anthony C. Sutton's uh, maxim from the 1970s, the best enemy money can buy not at policymaking level, but at certainly at corporate and banking level internationally. The thinking when one of these epoch-defining occupations or wars comes to an end is, we need to leave enough kit in the country and enough intelligence so that the guys we've been fighting can be our patsies next time. I'm afraid that, it, in a nutshell, is the history of the 20th century. It applies to Germany, Russia, many East Asian countries, and now Afghanistan again. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, okay, well, look, uh, just, uh, we're just going to move on, but uh, on the subject of drugs, a little bit of an aside here. Of course, fentanyl is the uh, artificial opiate, which is uh, taking over 
heroin is the number one opiate overdose killer. This is CBS News. They're talking about the United States, uh, but of course, fentanyl in the United Kingdom as well. And if we go back to the Skripal affair, um, uh, whenever the, uh, uh, the two civilians uh, were allegedly um, uh, poisoned, poisoned by Novichok, uh, it was initially thought to be a fentanyl related issue. So uh, the text is very small there, but uh, it was initially thought it was uh, fentanyl related. And certainly the Swindon advertiser around the same time uh, was talking about this super strength synthetic heroin being on the streets of the UK. Um, but look, uh, this is kind of a strange kind of segue, but I, I wanted to just remind everybody what uh, Dame Sally Davies, who was the chief medical officer at the time, had said about Novichok, the, the nerve agent, um, because uh, there was some confusion, as I say, uh, in the in the uh, press about uh, whether it was fentanyl or Novichok that uh, that those people were poisoned with. But Sally Davies at the time, if you remember, said, my advice for any individual uh, who might come in contact with Novichok, wash your clothes, wipe down any personal items, shoes and bags with cleansing or baby wipes before disposing of them in the usual way. Uh, now, we made a lot of fun about this at the time, but the question that ultimately uh, ended it was this. Uh, what is the actual UK government's narrative or what was the narrative uh, about Novichok? Was Novichok a deadly nerve agent which lasts forever and kills at a glance? Or was it a low risk, nerve, a, a low risk agent which can be washed away with everyday detergent and baby wipes? And Brian, I just wanted to put that back on screen again because uh, that was quite a few years ago now. And when that kind of narrative was being pushed out by the chief medical officer at the time, and I appreciate that that's the previous chief medical officer, not the current one, but we've had the same type of inconsistency through the whole uh, COVID crisis. Uh, and, yep. you know, I've got to ask, when, are, when is the British public going to learn uh, their lessons? Well, when, when they can see the lies that's in all the material coming out from the government, this is the beauty of the circumstance at the moment, is we don't have to provide the evidence. The evidence of the lies and the misinformation and the propaganda is simply being delivered by the government itself. It's, yes. it's a beautiful situation. Okay, Alex, let's come on to defence issues now. And uh, this is from USNI News. Uh, six naval task groups from US, UK, India, Japan and Australia underway in the Pacific. Is this more China bidding? It looks very much like it, Mike. We have a full house. We have the whole quad uh, of uh, Western and Western allied countries that have agreed to encircle China. And we have uh, Tin Pot Britain involved. Sorry, no, no disrespect meant to the Queen Elizabeth carrier group, but I think Brian will forgive me this, this remark. So let's see what's going on. The US Naval Institute's outlet, USNI News, enumerates uh, the carrier groups. Now, of course, the Pacific is a jolly big ocean. Uh, let's bear that in mind. But simultaneously, uh, currently operating in the region, according to this report, are the US Navy's uh, Carl Vinson Carrier Strike Group, the Japan-based America Expeditionary Strike Group, the Royal Navy's Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group, which is full of uh, other nations' uh, escort vessels, of course, the Australian Defence Force Indo-Pacific Endeavour 21 Task Group, the Japan Maritime Self-Defence Force, that's the Japanese Navy Indo-Pacific Deployment 2021 Force, 
and the Indian Navy Eastern Fleet Task Group. So this is, of course, the attempt to uh, guarantee FONOPS freedom of navigation operations. And uh, USNI uh, News Reports uh, goes on to, to report the British contingent. This will really keep the Straits of Taiwan and the Spratly Islands uh, channels open, won't it? Um, the Wake Island Avengers, oh, that's, the, that's the Americans, the squadron is integrated with the Royal Air Force, uh, Royal Air Force's 617 squadron, the Dambusters. I will square, spare you the theme tune of that wartime movie, but... Uh, there we are, and again, no respond, no uh, no slight meant to the gallant men and women of the Royal Air Force, uh, but the Dambusters doesn't quite do it, I don't think, for China. But there we are. That's Britain's contribution. So this is a conglomeration of the Five Powers Naval Agreement of 1960 and the Quad formed a couple of years ago, all ensuring the Chinese Navy stays hemmed in. Meanwhile, a viewer in Queensland, in Eastern Australia, has sent us something which we don't think has been covered very widely, although even British troops have been involved in this exercise off the Queensland coast. Um, there's been a training exercise in Bowen, Queensland, uh, just very recently. This local paper report that the viewer snapped is about the only source we have for it. And they go on to report on the next page of the local newspaper, covering it that uh, the name of the exercise was Talisman Sabre, and that there were Brits involved. We don't know much. The article goes on to assure everyone that there's no COVID contamination because the uh, uh, the, the nasty sailors and soldiers will, will stay out to see when, when they're not required to storm the beaches. Uh, but we'd have a couple of snaps of what the viewer sent. So any strategic air spotters and enthusiasts can inform us as to the significance of these being parked on the apron on the uh, Gold Coast. Uh, in Australia for the duration of the exercise. The viewer notifies us, and there's one more shot of that through the glass of the aerodrome. Uh, the viewer notifies us that while this was going on and the various uh, allied ships, Western ships uh, and uh, Marines were out just off the Queensland coast, there was, quote, a massive Chinese warship further out to sea. We're not aware of whether this was a bait exercise, uh, a saber rattling or some kind of uh, coordinated um, standoff against each other. But it certainly won't have been that the Chinese volunteered uh, to be part of this uh, Anglo-American Australian exercise. So uh, any reliable information will be welcome to clarify what's going on, gone on there. It seems there's been at national level media silence on that operation. Okay. If we go back to Europe, uh, Defence News in the US is reporting that something we've reported on for quite a while, the military mobility project of the EU's military initiative, PESCO, is now stuck uh, because the Netherlands, which of course is the host country for a lot of these rolling, uh, these, these tracked vehicles you see on screen, a lot of them will be imported via Rotterdam to go up to the Eastern Front when required. That's why the Netherlands is, is on point for the, for the military mobility project of the EU. They're now having to uh, square an agreement uh, between the member states of the EU, who were the founder members of this initiative of military mobility, and now the two North American members of NATO and Norway, none of the none of which is in the EU, and uh, what's on screen uh, as you tap the next button is most significant. At the end of the article, Defence News reports again the um, omnipresence of the defence industry becoming a, a trans. Uh, continental uh, agglomerate at this point in the background. So they report that what seems to be snagging it is not just that NATO countries are trying to uh, jump onto an EU bandwagon and have to harmonise the, the script, but more particularly that some member states, this is of, of NATO, sorry, of the EU, of PESCO, have previously indicated discomfort with the idea of allowing a degree of US involvement that could result in American defence industry heavyweights playing a dominant role later on. Uh, for those who can't quite join the dots. 
if the next Afghanistan is Russia or a buffer country around Russia, that's the next generation long war. And that will be the next opportunity for a US-led, but in fact, global reach defense industry to send more and more expensive kit and white elephants uh, into Europe. So that's why this is now transcending even the EU and becoming just, a, a NATO-wide. Yeah, I was just going to say, Alex, well, it's interesting that the UK government has just uh, released a new statement in support of Ukraine. So perhaps that uh, that's the next step. It could very well be. It really could. Uh, at this point, many of those smartest analysts who cover both the Russian and Chinese world are saying that Ukraine is even more of a, a tinderbox than Taiwan at this point. And so these things can be flicked at the drop of a hat, but it could very well be. Staying on the military, uh, the Pentagon, so the controllers of uh, and employers at law of all the US troops of all of its service branches have announced, and this is from uh, the Secretary of State level, uh, as it's been signed off, there is now a vaccine mandate for COVID-19, so-called vaccines, but no set deadline. At the moment, of course, only the Pfizer shot has been given FDA approval. More on that anon, because there's a there's a wangle involved there as well. Uh, but there's suggestions that the US Secretary of State for Defense uh, could, in the wording that he's put in his memo, uh, uh, put pressure on President Biden to allow uh, those uh, shots that do not even have FDA approval yet, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, which are both being used in the US, that these could be made mandatory for troops before getting FDA approval. Now, what does the Military Times say about this, which is particularly interesting? It's that, well, people can freeze the screen, we won't go through the stats, but the US Navy is the most jabbed service, uh, which goes down to the US Army being the more recalcitrant service. Uh, it seems that fewer than half of, uh, or just over half, 57% uh, of the US Army have partial coverage, uh, and 40% only have full coverage, whereas the Navy has got three quarters of full-time personnel jabbed uh, without taking too much time uh, away from it since we have a retired naval man with us. I wonder whether Brian can give us an idea as to what the factors might be as to why the US Navy has got so much more jab compliance than the US Army. Well, that's a difficult question to answer, Alex, but I think maybe it's something as simple as the fact that if you've got people on board a ship, you've got an absolute captive audience, particularly if the ship's on deployment. Uh, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run or hide. So if the if the jab is being made compulsory, you you're probably going to end up taking it. Whereas if you're with a squad of troops in a base somewhere, um, maybe there's a bit more flexibility in in uh, in protesting. Um, but we know from uh, quite a few years ago that some young Royal Marines were actually having trouble in that they were coming back. Uh, from uh, Afghanistan and being offered so-called uh, prophylactic drugs to prevent PTSD. And when they said, well, there's nothing wrong with us, we don't want to take these drugs, they were threatened with disciplinary action uh, that they should take them. And we know that this caused great stress to some of these young Royal Marines. So um, that's my best guess. The ship is a captive audience. Well, what you say, Brian, uh, dovetails very well with what we're going on to now, because going down to the individual service level, the Army Times in the United States has reported the memorandum, although not published it, they've had sight of it, uh, which uh, a colonel level um, uh, officer uh, in charge of uh, army uh, health uh, has signed off on, and which is the protocol for how to deal with those who say, no, thank you, I do not want your jabs, uh, which because that's been revised. Uh, as they say in the green link there, uh, this is actually a pre-existing 
uh, and very worrying policy that's being restated. This comes from previous mandatory jabs in the military, such as the disastrous uh, cases around anthrax jabs 20 years ago. Some of the same producers, of course, are involved now, like Emergent Biosolutions, who supply to AstraZeneca. Uh, but the, the language that's not new, but which is eyebrow-raising in this context, and probably very relevant to warships, Brian, although, although this, is a, this is army only at this point, it will spread, is that uh, in if there is a, a likely an imminent threat, so in the Gulf War, that would have been... We're about to be anthrax bombed, really, really. Um, or in this case, we're about to all go down with COVID, believe me. That's the imminent threat. The base commander or unit commander can then say, hold that guy down while we shoot him up. Right. So unit personnel, the document says, and this predates the COVID crisis, but it's been reasserted now by the relevant colonel. Unit personnel, this is U.S. Army only, will only use the amount of force necessary to assist medical personnel. That would be an army nurse in administering the immunization. So the holding down of people is, I'm afraid, on the way, at least in the military, which tends to be a test bed for many of these things. Now, we were talking about Pfizer being the only FDA authorized shot, but there are in fact two Pfizer jabs. So Children's Health Defense with its organ, the Defender, have reported this, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Dr. Merrill Nass, two names both, both very well known to many of our viewers, have this article up, two things mainstream media didn't tell you about the FDA's approval of the Pfizer vaccine. And we'll just scoot through them in this article and then see a better analysis elsewhere. Well, uh, sorry, I should, I should say a more uh, ruminated analysis elsewhere. So the first thing that uh, you, weren't been, you weren't told by the mainstream is that Pfizer acknowledges it doesn't actually have stocks in the US of the version, the Comirnaty branded jab, that it has got approval for. And the second thing, which we are not being told in the mainstream media, is that the licensed Pfizer Comirnaty vaccine, so the one that has been uh, allowed to be mandated now, although it's not available in stock in the US, apparently by design, uh, is distinct from the EU area Pfizer vaccine. Uh, but apparently this does not impact safety or effectiveness. So this article concludes that given this background, the FDA's acknowledgement that there are insufficient stocks of the licensed one, Comirnaty, the licensed flavor of Pfizer, exposes the so-called approval as a cynical scheme to encourage businesses and schools, and perhaps the military, given what we've just seen, to impose illegal jab mandates. So what does uh, someone do in this situation if they're an employee or a student in the States? They can, in extremists, say, ah, you've got a mandate to require me to be shot up with Pfizer, but only the Comirnaty one. So I demand to have proof that you've given me that version, knowing full well and not necessarily saying that there are no stocks of that in the United States. That might buy someone some time. Now, this has been better digested because uh, Nass and, and uh, Kennedy obviously had their work cut out exposing this. It's been it's been uh, analysed in a different way by Swiss Policy Research, a very reliable website, uh, in an article entitled Pfizer slash FDA colon 95% deception question mark. So what this says in, in plain language is that the lower paragraph on the screen at the moment, um, that Pfizer are using the unavailable branded product, that's Comirnaty, to justify politically motivated vaccination mandates. But they may then deliver the unbranded product, that's the one that's uh, in stock in America, that to avoid any liability for vaccine injuries, uh, because there's no uh, liability under the end user agreement, but there is full liability under a market license. An update from the Washington Times suggests that it's even worse than that, that at law, Pfizer doesn't bear a liability for either of these shots. It's just that under one of them, they claim some kind of lawful, lawful authorization.
Um, we continue on the military. Uh, while all this is going on, that the troops are now so regarded as so infantile that they can be told to be jabbed and held down if they say, I have my doubts about that. Uh, meanwhile, there is an army unit which has been uh, training uh, its soldiers in how to date, uh, how to lead a romantic personal life. So again, the infantilization proceeds apace. So the Military Times covers this as tired of dating jerks. The army is here to help. And of course, this would be the large number of single, particularly young women who are now in the in this um, uh, military scene who are getting their hearts broken and who are therefore not militarily effective. So what's happened is that the Army's fifth course out in, uh, they had an offsite in Ohio, but I believe it's a neighboring state where they're based. Uh, they had an offsite uh, with a workshop entitled Don't, Don't Date a Jerk. And they actually have a corps chaplain, Captain Brad Wisomierski, who put out a press statement linked from the piece, who says the army wants to make sure we're putting training and value back into developing healthy relationships. So this is part of the U.S. Army's People First initiative. It's an, it's a, uh, an offsite called Strong Bonds, a unit-based chaplain-led program seeking to enhance soldier resiliency through personal enrichment. It's looking like when you join up for, to fight for Uncle Sam now, you have no power over your own body. Uh, you're told you don't have the mind to work out what health uh, administrations you need. And you're also told whom to date. Um, is there any personal life left for U.S. Uh, service people? Are they actually regarded as adults or not? Well, I think you're demonstrating quite happily, Alex, that they're not regarded as adults and they're not being treated as adults. And of course, the result of that is that we're getting all sorts of disciplinary problems on board uh, American warships and in the other armed forces. So this is actually breakdown. This is a cultural attack on the, the American military from the inside. And I think we're starting to see some pretty severe effects as a result of it. It's certainly not accidental policy. Mm, indeed. Uh, in the meantime, back to the UK. And uh, well, the headline at the end of last week was COVID spike forces Devon and Cornwall to call in army to support ambulance crews. <laughs> uh, so uh, we uh, military back on the streets in order to support ambulance crews. Now, it was a bank holiday weekend. So uh, the, clearly ambulance crews in Devon and Cornwall under a bit of pressure because of the extra number of people that were in those counties, but it's not like they didn't know that it was going to happen. Uh, so surely they must have been prepared for that, Brian. But anyway, designated by the government as an enhanced response area over the bank holiday weekend, residents in the southwest were being advised to wear masks and socially distance. Um, so there you go. Now, I have to say I, I had cause to be uh, at Derriford Hospital uh, yesterday. And uh, two things are absolutely clear uh, within the hospital. One is that um, uh, no matter what the issue you go in with, um, if you do have a symptom, um, they will absolutely uh, assume that, first of all, that that's uh, what it is. If it's temperature, for example, um, you don't have to have any kind of actual resp respiratory symptoms. If it's a temperature, they'll, they'll assume that's what it is. But it's it's pretty clear that uh, uh, the, the, that hospital, and I'm sure every other hospital in the country, is being run on the principle of the PCR test and the idea of asymptomatic spread. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter whether you're displaying symptoms or not, um, assumptions are being made. And I do then question whether, yeah. the, whether people are being diagnosed properly. One of the other things that I noticed at the hospital is that they have MRI scanners uh, outside the hospital now. They are temporary uh, scanners, temporarily housed. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to remind everybody what the latest stats are from the ONS, because the point that I want to continue to remind everybody of is that uh, with rising uh, waiting lists and talk of 
anything from 10 to 15 million people on the waiting list by the end of the year at the NHS. Um, the consistent area where there's been excess mortality since the beginning of this whole COVID thing has been people dying in their homes, having not received uh, the medical treatment that they need for non-COVID related uh, issues. And if we just look at the latest uh, statistics from the ONS uh, showing what they are describing as people that are uh, deaths having died from not involving COVID-19 and deaths which are involving COVID-19. And of course, the definition of that is someone who tested positive via PCR test within 28 days of the death. Um, well, if we go back to, to March last year, we can see that uh, even though uh, there are a number of deaths, quite a significant number of deaths there, which are attributed to COVID-19, whether that's confirmed or not, um, there were also a significant number of deaths which were not involving COVID-19, according to the OS, ONS's definition, uh, above the five-year average line. Um, so uh, already by March uh, 2020 and April 2020, the NHS was not uh, succeeding in, in maintaining any kind of standard of service. It seems to me, maybe that's, some people might find that a little bit harsh. Um, come the uh, autumn last year, uh, the autumn 2020, coming into the winter of 2020, we started to see um, what were deaths being attributed to COVID-19 again, uh, taking the uh, all-cause mortality levels up above the five-year average again. But you'll notice that we saw that starting to fall uh, just prior to the vaccination program. And then suddenly we have this massive uh, spike uh, following vaccination, a couple of weeks following the vaccination program. Uh, then in the summer, as in 2020, we've had uh, very little uh, mortality relative to the five-year average, or at least it's below the five-year average line. But you notice it's back up again, uh, back up above the five-year average line at the moment. But again, we're seeing uh, that meds, you know, at least 50% of those excess deaths are not involving COVID-19, according to the uh, ONS's definition of, of a death involving COVID-19. And uh, that, of course, is the government's definition, which is a positive PCR test within 28 days of the death. Uh, and I just want to remind everybody, of course, that when we look at the trend and the, the, the types of people that have been affected by COVID over the last 18 months, um, even admitted by full fact, because really they couldn't uh, avoid admitting this, um, the average age of a person who died from COVID is 82 years and three months. The average age of death from other causes is 81 years. Um, and so, you know, again, the question has to be asked, um, why are we experiencing this situation where the NHS is effectively not able to provide a service uh, for any other cause than COVID? Uh, why is the ambulance service not able to cope with a bank holiday weekend? Why is the army having to be brought on the streets? Where's the justification for lockdown, mass vaccination programs, and so on? It isn't there uh, based on the uh, mortality statistics. No, and it's a subject which full fact won't be investigating, Mike, because they simply shy away from looking at the true statistics and coming up with the accurate uh, information. Let's get on to a document that's called, caused, uh, caused a lot of people to uh, question the vaccination programme. So this has been circulating for a few days, but several people pushed it at me. It's COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, 
the risk management plan. Um, now, this is dated around the 15th of April 2021. Uh, Pfizer document, but as we'll see, um, whether it's purely the company or it's working together with the Europe uh, with the EU Medicines Agency is difficult to tell, but some fascinating information in this document. So let's have a little look through it. This comes up quite quickly. Um, we've got the details of the particular uh, plan itself, and there's the date of approval, 15th of April 2021. And then it puts down uh, a lady's name, Barbara de Bernardi, as the QPPV. Well, what is this? This is the qualified person for former co-vigilance. So this effectively is a person who should be absolutely looking after the uh, welfare of the public, looking for the safety of the vaccine and making sure that the public, uh, mem members of the public are not hurt in, in any way. Now, I'm just in going to have a look for this lady and who exactly she was. I ended up on the European Forum for Qualified person for pharmacovigilance. And this was a conference, a workshop that happened to be held in October 2018 at London Heathrow. Um, at London Heathrow. And here's the lady down at the bottom. So we can just bring that up on screen. And it says EU QPPV deputy and head of EU safety office, Pfizer Italy. Now, I found this interesting because you say, well, is she working directly for Pfizer or is she working for the EU on secondment to Pfizer or does she have a foot in both camps? And I wasn't able to find out the answer to that. So we'll say to our audience, if you can help pin down exactly where this lady works in her role, that will be extremely interesting. And uh, my research, I'm just digressing slightly, but I think this is important, took me on to the European Medicines Agency. Here they are. And what caught my eye was that if we have a look at the chief executive, we've uh, got a lady called Emma Cook, and uh, we find that previously she was working for the World Health Organization uh, as the medical product regulatory activities expert. So we start to see this revolving wheel of people moving through the World Health Organization back into, say, the MHRA, if it was UK, or into the uh, EU uh, Medicines Agency in this case. And uh, it's difficult to pin down whether these people are actually uh, poachers or the gamekeeper. So what did the document had to say? Well, it said, in summary, the non-clinical safety findings related to COVID-19 mRNA vaccine administration primarily represent an expected immune reaction to vaccine administration, but it's clinically manageable and acceptable risks for the intended population. So no problems there, Mike. They're completely happy. Uh, but that is a little bit of a summary. Let's have a look at what it actually said. So these are key safety findings. And uh, we've got non-clinical studies and uh, we've got no evidence. It says a vaccine elicited disease enhancement uh, suggests a low risk of vaccine enhanced, uh, enhanced disease in humans. And um, there's a little uh, uh, note there, A and B. So we'll have a look at those. So A said that safety pharmacology, genotoxicity and carcinogenicity studies were not conducted. So now we're getting into the meat of the thing. And what we're going to find is that a lot of things were not done 
are not known. And this seems to fit very nicely with the fact that actually we've got an experimental product unleashed on the public. Uh, now, why weren't these conducted? Well, it says because that was in accordance with the 2005 WHO vaccine guidelines, as they're generally not considered necessary to support development and licensure of vaccines for infectious diseases. So that was convenient. We don't have to do it because, well, the 2005 WHO rules say we don't. And if we have a look at the note B, it says, based on audited study data, a DART study evaluating COVID-19 mRNA vaccine will be completed by the 31st of March 2021. We'll see that in a minute, but the DART is to do with reproductive issues. So toxicity, injection site reactions were common and reversible, apparently, and showed signs of reversibility at the end of the three-week recovery period in non-clinical studies. So these are all non-clinical. In common with other vaccines, COVID-19 mRNA vaccine administration has the potential to generate injection site reactions such as edema, arrhythmia at the injection site. So some acknowledgement of, of problems, but it's only minor stuff around the injection site. Uh, then we move on. It says evidence of inflammation or immune activation was common, but reversible, but is my uh, in injection there, uh, reversible and included transiently higher body temperature, higher circulating WBCs and higher acute phase reactants. So it's acknowledged um, that uh, there was evidence of inflammation or immune activation, uh, but again, it's been put out that this was no problem. And then we get on to the DART issues. Um, no vaccine-related effects on female fertility or the development of fetuses or offspring were observed in a DART study of BNT162B2 in rats. So I thought that the average lady would feel greatly encouraged to know that uh, there hadn't been any problems in rats. And on that basis, according to that study, they can go ahead uh, and be giving it to um, live human beings. Uh, where do we go on from that? Well, here's frail patients with comorbidities. And what this says very quickly, it says, the vaccine has been studied in individuals with stable chronic diseases. However, it's not been studied in frail individuals with severe comorbidities. So Mike, we haven't done the trials here. And if we move on to the next one, long-term safety data, we quickly find exactly the same at the time of vaccine availability, the long-term safety of BNT162B2 mRNA vaccine is not fully known. So this is a risk assessment sheet where it's continually saying that the, the trials have not been done on safety or the results on the safety are not known. Alex, you're looking at this quite intently, I can see on screen. Would you like to comment before I move on on this amazing document? Just to remind those who didn't catch the BNT followed by the string, uh, that is the Pfizer vaccine. And this is a particular issue that Dr. Hervé Seligman has drawn attention to and has been written up by Ian Davis We're on the, in a piece that's still on the front of ukcolumn.org, uh, that there is a particular uh, problem in studies now acknowledging that actually there's a window 
between the jabs and shortly after the second jab, where you have very much higher death rates than in the background population, you know, multiple dozen times higher death rates for a short period. So this is something specifically about Pfizer. Uh, remind, a reminder, in the last segment, we were talking about Pfizer having got ahead of the pack in the United States. And at least one version, Cominati, now has the full authorization, the EUA. Uh, and yet all this is going on in the background, sloppily done uh, tests. It, it, and someone in the chat box has said this makes for dry, very dry reading. But my dear fellow who put that in the chat box, and I'm sure you know this and you are being ironic, this is how people get away with things, isn't it? By putting small print and footnotes in that say, actually, the work wasn't done properly. Well, and, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, then they're allowed to get away with that, Alex, by the MHRA that simply does not hold them to account over this sloppy and I would say dangerous experimentation on the public. Let's move on through the document and uh, bring the next one up. <clears throat> Interaction with other vaccines, what does it say? Uh, well, it says there are no data on interaction with the Pfizer vaccine with other vaccines at this time. And yet the moment this vaccine was unleashed on the population, it was clearly being mixed with AstraZeneca and other, other vaccines, but there was no safety data according to this document. So the proof is there that this was a trial unleashed on the public. Here's long-term safety data. And um, at the time of vaccine availability, the long-term safety of the Pfizer vaccine is not fully known. And uh, it really goes on because if we get into a summary of the safety concerns, uh, look at this box, lower left, missing information. What are we missing? Well, information on pregnancy and breastfeeding, uh, information on immunocompromised patients, its use in frail patients with comorbidities, its use in patients with autoimmune or inflammatory disorders, uh, interaction with other vaccines and long-term safety data. But don't worry, it's completely safe. Yes. Yes. Okay, now if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, your, uh, well, join us there. It would be very much appreciated uh, and very much needed. Also do share our material that you find on the various uh, platforms, uh, brand YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, and so on. Um, now, Alex, uh, we have an, an email in. Oh, sorry, this is, uh, first of all, togetherdeclaration.org you wanted to highlight. A couple of brief announcements in this segment. TogetherDeclaration.org is a very laudable initiative by moral leaders of society uh, with uh, ministers of religion and medics in the lead, I'm glad to see, um, resisting any suggestion that vaccine passports are uh, reconcilable with British liberties. And what a particular strength of this declaration is, is that it uh, incorporates a number of overseas-born people who make a point in the declaration text of saying, uh, we had to fight for these liberties and we saw people die uh, for lack of them. And now we're in Britain and the same thing's happening again. Uh, so do go and see that. Now, uh, an old friend of UK Column has written another uh, stonking piece uh, in Global Research, the excellent Canadian website for whom he regularly writes. So Julian Rose has written a piece entitled The Great Global Warming Alarm, with global warming in inverted commas, is part of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset. And uh, on screen, I've got an extract here. He's talking about the scary message 
of disaster if we don't act, underpinning everything. So the point he's making, as the editors have put in a subheader here as well in the piece, is that fear is the glue that binds it all together. And uh, one more announcement, those of a legal interest uh, may, may uh, be aware of the European Centre for Law and Justice, ECLJ.org, based in Strasbourg and run by the French lawyer Grégoire Pupink, who's done excellent work, yeoman's work, in digging up how uh, Soros organisations control the uh, appointments of many judges, ultimately, and the training of many judges to the European Court of Human Rights. But now he's gone on from that success to look at the financing of UN experts, rather similar to what Brian was saying a few moments ago with the revolving doors of UN agencies like the WHO. So the ECLJ, which is well worth subscribing to in a newsletter, has exposed how these UN experts are not actually impartial experts. In many cases, they're funded by uh, the usual tycoons whose names are increasingly well known to the general public now. Uh, OK, and uh, just briefly, Alex, if we could, you had a, an email in from Australian viewer. Yes, uh, the Australian viewer, and this is just also trailing that in extra time we will be uh, focusing on Australia in a couple of hideous videos. Uh, so for those who are subscribers, we'll go into more detail. The viewer writes, you've probably already heard this, that the contracts signed between government and Big Pharma have a quota to meet. And if they don't meet it, the land and commodities will be up for grabs. Well, we haven't seen the contracts. That's the whole point. They're being kept secret. So I will, I will regard this as, as credible information from the viewer. This sounds plausible, says the viewer, due to the sheer desperation the governments are displaying to coerce people into getting the jab. Now, we've just seen that. Not sure if you've had more info on the contracts. Well, we haven't. And the viewer says, I work in health in Australia and they are segregating us non-vaxxed. Not sure where they're going to put us, but they are wanting to, so, but they are labeling the buildings red zone. So if your nurse isn't jabbed, it's a red zone, all under the guise of work, health, and safety to protect the unvaxxed. And of course, then the viewer goes on to say that uh, they feel despairing at times, which takes some guts to say, because this really is something that can lead people to despair. But of course, I replied to the viewer to hang in there and to uh, ensure that we can see an end to this uh, period of horror. The Australians are certainly getting it really bad right now. Uh, without, uh, without question, it's bad. Uh, another email in from Australia. Uh, this gentleman, Roger, says, I hope you will cover the arrest and imprisonment of Monica Schmidt, leader of the Reignite Democracy Australia Party, who becomes Australia's first political prisoner, a first in a Western democracy. Well, it was once. Um, now, that alerted me. I'm going to say I did find some information on this lady from X99 News, but it's not a very good report. But it appears that she's been arrested on charges relating to pr uh, provocation, so inciting unrest, presumably. I haven't got a formal and detailed report on it. So if there's somebody in Australia who's watching us at the moment or looking at the recording later on, please, can you help us out with some more information? And I'll say anecdotally, uh, speaking over the weekend to somebody who's got uh, family out in uh, Australia, uh, they were saying it's horrific what, uh, what a family member in Australia is reporting. So police helicopters in the sky shouting warnings and telling people to get indoor drones flying, uh, helicopter flights at night, and of course people being arrested and the interstate uh, highways shut down. Um, with demonstrations by lorry drivers, I think, being quite brutally dealt with. So if you're in Australia and you can give us more information or video footage or audio report, we would love to have it. Um, OK, uh, heading over to Euro News now, and uh, the headline here is Italy braces for protests over new COVID rules for domestic travel. 
Um, and uh, sorry, was this was this yours, Alex, or was it mine? Uh, no, it isn't. But uh, oh, the next, uh, the next in the segment are mine. Yeah, right. So, so that's what confused me there. Right. Okay. Well, well basically, uh, what at least what the Italian government is saying is they're going to have zero tolerance against demonstrators uh, who um, are going to block the demonstrators are planning to block the train tracks uh, to protest new COVID rules for long distance travel. So uh, Euronews saying that uh, from today, travelers will only be allowed to use certain public transport if they uh, show a so-called green pass. Uh, which prov proves uh, uh, recent vaccination, the negative COVID tests in the last 48 hours or recovery from uh, the disease in the last six months. Um, so the rules were announced uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it applies to any tr travel, including domestic flights, train travel uh, and sea travel. And some ferries are exempt, uh, exempt. But anyway, lots of people wanting to protest about that. Uh, and the Italian government say very, saying very, very clearly that they are not going to, uh, to put up with that. Um, but uh, back to the UK for a second, because here's uh, the Evening Standard uh, say, claiming that the, uh, or at least the Met Police are claiming that they have spent £50 million so far policing Extinction Rebellion protests since 2019. And the question is, well, why is this in the news right now? Because, OK, Extinction Rebellion is probably going to raise its head uh, over the next few weeks as we run up to COP26. But there hasn't been much disruption, uh, certainly since uh, COVID began. So why is this being brought up right now? Well, of course, the reason that it's being brought up right now is because the uh, the uh, policing uh, was the police crime criminal uh, conduct bill. Can't remember the exact name uh, is coming into uh, uh, back into Parliament for uh, well, it's it's progressing quite swimmingly through Parliament, and that uh, Alex is going to uh, prevent uh, a lot of uh, protest people being pushed into protest pens and so on. An extinction rebellion being used as a sort of poster child for this, uh, the excuse for this kind of draconian shutdown in lockdown. But what what was uh, sh uh, draconian shutdown on protest? But what fascinated me about this was uh, yet again we have uh, an identical policy popping up in various parts of the world, in the UK and in Italy. Uh, there basically protest is not going to be permitted in the very near future. If Italians or other continentals are wondering what's coming down the, the turnpike, as the Americans say, uh, read The Road to Kill the Bill, uh, an excellent ebook and and print book, which outlines how the Northern English police forces spare, perfected this method just for you European fellows to, to uh, enjoy the benefits of. And it involves a fake extreme protest group being made the darling uh, of the movement and stealing all the limelight and staging silly protests that are actually tipped off in advance to the police, all hand in glove stuff. And because of that, you serious protesters won't get any media coverage and will be tarred with the same brush. That's the script. And it was written in Britain. Yes, and I just uh, wanted to highlight the fact that uh, even The Guardian is uh, raising a flag about uh, the police and crime bill because uh, this headline, I think, was uh, 6th, 9th of August, so quite a few weeks ago. Now, I didn't see it at the time, but uh, the police bill is not about law and order. It's about state control. It absolutely is. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's something, as I've said many times, that unfortunately the campaign to kill the bill has been effectively co-opted by the Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, and so on. But this is a subject which go, crosses uh, all the political spectrum, and everybody should be getting involved in uh, in opposing it. And one way to oppose it, of course, is to get in touch with Joshua Clements, the journalist there from The Guardian who's written that article, um, give some support, encouragement, give more facts and evidence as to what's going on. 
to encourage him to be producing more material and, of course, talking to his friends and telling them what's actually happening. Um, so, Alex, protest in France, then? Yes, I haven't been able to trace where in France, but we're just going to roll a bit of uh, footage without sound, which has been shared on a number of platforms. In this case, a gentleman called Dan on uh, Twitter. He reports that the French citizens are boycotting, as you can see in this uh, portrait filmed footage right now, they're boycotting the vaccine passports, the pass sanitaire, which are now law in France, by sprawling their picnic rugs right in the middle of the trottoir in a French street and uh, sticking two fingers up gallically or one finger as it would be there. Uh, to all these uh, cafe owners who say you must have a pass sanitaire to eat on our uh, terrazza. So instead, they're about a, a foot, well, f three, three feet away from the entrances to these cafes, simply having a mass picnic on the street, uh, done in, in real French style with some great panache. And uh, would that we could see such scenes in English speaking countries, but I, I fear that we don't have that spirit. I'd like to be proved wrong, though. Uh, yes. Now, do, going over to uh, Germany, they have, of course, 16 federal states like the US, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, or sorry, not New Zealand, but Australia. They, they have uh, management of health uh, issues by state, as Britain now has with devolution, but even more so. So Der Tagesspiegel, one of the quality Berlin papers, is reporting that the uh, most totalitarian state of the 16, the southwestern state of Baden-Württemberg, uh, is planning, quote, a lockdown for the unvaccinated. And they're quoting here the state premier of Waden-Württemberg. And note how many of these uh, worst premiers in Australia, too, are supposedly centre-right and social conservatives, allegedly. Thomas Strobel is one of those. He's, uh, he runs Baden-Württemberg's uh, state government. And he told Bild am Sonntag, the German equivalent of the sun, that uh, if they have over 300 patients in intensive care, which is a number that can be very easily manipulated in Germany, we've reported German press covering this quite recently, then what they're going to do is lock up the unjabbed and let the jabbed get on with their lives without social distancing. And then the quote in the middle of the bit, I, bit I've blown up is very interesting. Es wäre falsch. He, was, he says it would be wrong, as in morally wrong, to hold everyone jointly liable, including the jabbed. So that's why they're going to have other, we're going to have different rules for the unjabbed than for the jabbed. Because the phrase he uses in German is that the, the jabbed should not be taken in mithaftung, which is a legal phrase meaning held jointly liable at law. And it has overtones of kept in confinement with the others as well. So he's, he's uh, openly admitting that there is a kind of a legal, um, a pseudo legal treatment going on here that uh, you unjabbed are responsible for it all. Also giving the lie on that same German news story, giving the lie to the idea that you'll be able to get a, a green pass in the EU uh, by proving uh, uh, negative uh, test status from a PCR test. Well, Mike, you just read out that that is for the time being still the case in Italy or in the case in Britain with these passes. But Hamburg at state level, which is a city state within Germany, uh, has already decreed that when venues such as cinemas uh, reopen, as they are at the moment, they can themselves decide whether it will be social distancing or not. And if it's not socially distanced, uh, then they will not accept a negative PCR test. It will be jab or antibodies indicating recovery. Exactly what has been predicted around the rest Western world, that the, the third option for getting one of these passes, which is paying through the nose literally uh, and metaphorically for a test every few days, is no longer going to be uh, kept open-endedly. It will be jab or nothing in the end. Uh, another German quality paper, Welt, 
has reported something rather interesting. Tellingly enough, it's in their economics rubric of the paper. Uh, they're reporting that uh, nearly half of Germany's very many doctors' surgeries have stopped administering COVID-19 jabs. So uh, there are something over 50,000 uh, doctors' surgeries in Germany, a big country and very heavy on doctors. And uh, the Welt am Sonntag has... Uh, uh, reported that the Robert Koch Institute, notorious to those who follow the German end of COVID, has reluctantly had to admit in a survey carried out in the second week of August that currently they don't have uh, over 50,000 doctor's surgeries administering the jabs anymore. It is now fewer than 30,000. The figure is now 29,300. So since a cluster of uh, pathology or, or autopsies have been carried out by a German pathologist, as we've reported when Patrick was on the uh, news before the break. Since this uh, this pathology has, uh, has indicated that a large minority of those who died with COVID on their certificate actually died of COVID among the elderly in particular, that news has got through to doctors, uh, perhaps better than anyone else. And something approaching half of the doctor's surgeries in Germany are saying, no, I will no longer administer this. So the, the, the purchasing and the stocks of these jabs are going down quite uh, rapidly now as well, quite precipitously. Over in Switzerland, the Sunday imprint of the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, again, a paper of record in Germany, in, Swiss, in Switzerland, in Zurich, reports that the uh, Secret Service is warning of attacks on vaccine centres. Let's go to a handy uh, coverage of this by this in English by the Singaporean uh, quality paper, The Straits Times. Their headline of the NZZ headline is Switzerland warns of terror attacks on COVID-19 vaccine sites. But what's this? We see that there's a lot of blurb of the kind I used to help write when I was at GCHQ for the annual paper exercise of the uh, re revised threat levels for all countries and issues of terrorism in the world. But the Straits Times reports at the end of this piece, the agency, that's the Swiss uh, intelligence agency, is concerned about attacks from militant groups. So far, there are no tangible indications of planned attacks. So uh, it's, uh, it's another spectre of the mind, I think. Surely this will be the Taliban, won't it? Oh, yes, yes. This, this will be, uh, I mean, anyone who comes from Afghanistan and who's from the countryside can be called a Talib, you know, and, and the, the extra trick that gets played in English is then he's from the Taliban as if that were a singular entity. <laughs> yes. OK. Uh, OK, Alex, uh, back to the UK then and uh, uh, the mirror. This is really heartrending, particularly for me as the husband of a radiographer, because I don't think a continental European country, even where they are hard pressed with a so, uh, supposed COVID pandemic, would do this. Uh, a young boy of seven has been refused MRI scans because they need to uh, supposedly hold the scanners in readiness. Now, his uh, parents have been very diplomatic in what they're saying. Uh, they've been given this exclusively to the Daily Mirror. Uh, the headline is Race to Save Brain Tumor Boy. It's an aggressive uh, stage three uh, glioma, which, of course, is, is well known for, for flipping from benign to malignant very rapidly. So scans are very much of the essence. The, the imaging diagnostics are crucial to survival for a child with this condition. COVID delays, as the headline, leaves him with just a 20% chance of survival. Now, obviously, there are many factors in survivability in an individual case, so we're not being fools in reporting this, but let's see uh, what's actually has gone on here. Alexander Josephs, who's seven, uh, has 20% odds of beating his cancer if he stays in Britain and uh, undergoes NHS treatment. An MRI scan revealing his tumour uh, was conducted, it seems, it seems uh, but it got lost amidst the chaos. His parents 
incredibly have forgiven the hospital for this. No continental hospital would forgive such a mistake uh, among its own staff. Then surgery to remove the tumour was delayed three months because hospitals were overrun with COVID patients. And his mother, uh, Rhonda Joseph, says we don't blame the hospital. We know they're doing their very best to save him. I might beg to differ. Uh, if I know some people would find that morally reprehensible for me to say, but I do beg to differ there. And then finally, uh, in this mirror extract where of the of the uh, article, we see this, that by Christmas, um, uh, the, the young boy Alexander Joseph was having up to three seizures a day. And his terrified mother, Rhonda, called the hospital begging them to operate. And she said they still believed it was benign and said it was safer not to come in. This is really British, isn't it? Oh, don't worry, dearie. By the 2nd of January, his condition had worsened. But by then, his mother, Rhonda, was told they could not operate as the intensive care unit was on standby to be deployed for COVID patients. And private hospitals, you're no better off there in Britain, they told the Josephs the same thing. We cannot operate on this urgent case because there might be some COVID people. So, so theoretical patients are displacing real patients, leading to deaths. Yes, I think that uh, that is definitely a feature of the modern health service. Um, and where does that take us? Uh, it takes us to, to the Lancet, perhaps? Yes, um, this is courtesy of SSRN, which is uh, the um, Elsevier-owned uh, network that uh, pre-publishes, which gives, so give, gives academic advance notice of forthcoming papers in the social sciences and a bit broader now, medical science in this case. And uh, this has become rather controversial. A study of uh, healthcare workers who couldn't get out of hospital in Vietnam during a Delta variant wave or surge there uh, had their noses swabbed, and the paper that resulted was entitled Transmission of SARS-CoV-2 Delta Variant Among Vaccinated Healthcare Workers in Vietnam. So vaccinated is right there in their headline. Okay, so the comments uh, by the Facebook users who were able to ping this right under the SSRN upload already include a few who are saying it's outrageous that this is being misreported. That's what we see on, on screen right now. So the top comment is saying how outrageous to suggest this has anything to do with the jabs and then a, re a, report, a reply straight away saying, actually, you know, it's perfectly sensible to uh, to draw into it that, uh, that, that the people are jabbed. I haven't given the key detail, I apologise. The key detail that was found is that um, the, the staff whose noses were swabbed had 251 times as much viral load in their nasal passage uh, of COVID, uh, of SARS-CoV-2, uh, than in a previous uh, study before the Delta variant. And the, 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 what they're being told off for uh, is, uh, or what people are being told off for, is by is linking that to the idea of, uh, well, what makes the difference is you're jabbed and you've got antibody-dependent enhancement coming in. So uh, this was then reported by a number of people and the publishers, the prestigious Oxford University uh, Clinical Research Unit, published a rebuttal entitled Our Preprint Article, and uh, they've said that it's come to their attention that Children's Health Defence, the same uh, outlet uh, that RFK writes for, we showed a moment ago, uh, shared the false claim that our paper demonstrated, quote, vaccinated individuals carry 251 times the load of COVID-19 viruses in their nostrils compared to the unvaccinated. False, 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 false nothing to do with vaccination, etc. Um, but nothing daunted the uh, author on children's health defense, in this case, it's uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch in Texas, uh, has updated his original piece for children's health defense. And in the clarification, people can freeze it to read it in more detail. He says, actually, there is still no satisfactory proof um, 
that there is no link here. He says the vaccination status of the patients in this preprint in this study is not reported. Thus, no one here has done a direct comparison between unvaccinated Delta patients and unvaccinated earlier variant patients to determine the true difference in viral load. So prima facie, this paper is suggesting that because the jab uh, allows you to tolerate rather more of the infection, but is not that much more effective in the end at stopping it, you're going to become um, an absolute crucible for the breeding of these viruses, which will then roll out of you. And in this case, we're talking about Vietnamese nurses who are in contact with vulnerable patients. So you can guess the results. Uh, so again, we've, we've got uh, misleading data coming out and, of course, defensive data, which is essentially designed to mislead the public. Um, where are we heading? Well, of course, we're heading for the situation in Germany that people are going to be treated differently depending whether they're vaccinated or not. Thus, there's the need to um, know who's had the vaccine. So this document uh, we have been extremely interested in, digital documentation of COVID-19 certificates, vaccinations uh, status. Uh, this is the World Health Organization and its uh, subheading is technical specifications and implementation guidance dated the 27th of August, 2021. So right up to date on this, um, uh, there's the uh, second page. Now we want to reassure our viewers straight away that of course this is a completely independent document. So let's pop this up. Uh, this work was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the government of Estonia, uh, Foundation Botner, the state of Kuwait, and the Rockefeller Foundation. So um, clearly no problems at all here. And uh, it says that the views of the funding bodies have not influenced the content of this document in any way. That's just remarkable. So good. It's, it's good to see. Uh, well, if we get into it, it's uh, pretty comprehensive, um, won't do too much because we're a little bit short of time, but introduction here. And in this section, if we bring it up on the screen, it says COVID-19 vaccines are being delivered at record speed and countries need a way to give individuals a record of their vaccination status. It's all for us. We need to know. Ideally, digital technology can be leveraged to facilitate large scale vaccination campaigns and augment paper-based vaccination cards, which are easily lost and prone to fraud. So this is all to help us. It's really good. And the purpose of the document um, is to lay out an approach for creating a signed digital version of a vaccination record for COVID-19 based on a core data set of key information to be recorded and an approach for the digital signature. The document leverages existing free and open standards and is driven by the ethics, use cases and requirements of the digital documentation, digital documentation of COVID-19 certificates, vaccination status, and that's the DDCCVS there. And what's the target audience? Well, we're now getting to the meat of it. The target audience of the document is national authorities tasked with creating or overseeing the development of a digital vaccination certificate solution for COVID-19, but it may also be useful to government partners such as local businesses, international organizations, non-government organizations, and trade associations that may be required to support member states in developing or deploying a DDCCVS solution. So I think underneath that, we'll just pop back in that, of course, who's funding it. And what this document is trying to say is that the funders have no interest 
at all in the target audience, which of course is completely false. They have an absolute interest in getting their agenda through to this target audience. So um, this is not really the World Health Organization we're dealing with. We're back with Bill and Melinda Gates, the state of Qatar, Estonia for some reason, and the Rockefeller Foundation. Well, if we follow it through, this is what they're looking at. Ethical considerations. Now, if you think that's the ethics of having a vaccine pass, no, it's not, because what they mean by ethical is equity and equitable access. Everybody should have the opportunity to get one of these nice passes because, of course, they're only here for our health and safety and well-being. Uh, we've got a continuity of care scenario, and that means that, of course, having this digital signature uh, will mean you'll know when you need the extra dose. So I found that reassuring. That's a little bit of sarcasm for our overseas audience. So you're going to have extra proof that you know when you were jabbed and therefore you're going to know when you need another jab. Uh, proof of vaccine scenario. Um, well, this is basically setting out uh, the details of the digital signing. Uh, we've got the core data set here. And if you read the detail, what it's really saying is that this is to give continuity of vaccine care for the individual and proof of vaccination for the authorities. Then we've got the National Trust uh, architecture for the DDCCVS. Uh, well, of course, what that's really talking about is countries need to have their own digital ecosystems in order for this architecture to be able to work properly. So this is a very comprehensive program. The national guidance, uh, governance considerations well, that is talking about uh, fully embedding this in every national system, uh, but also it's looking to create what they call a universal health coverage. So I think we can see that this is fully global governance coming in here in a control mechanism. And if we do eight implementation considerations, we're building a digital health infrastructure for beyond COVID-19, and that's going to be from childhood onwards. So uh, clearly this document thinks that children are going to be vaccinated and once they are, they're going to be fully on the vaccine passport, as it were. And the detail of the architecture is comprehensive. You need to go and have a look at this uh, document yourself to see the amount of information in it. Uh, but this is the business domain services section. And now it gets interested because tucked away at the bottom, we've got finance and insurance systems. So, of course, now we can see that this is not so much about our health and well-being as a means to uh, document who we are, um, what medication we've had and how they can make more profit from big pharma. Yeah, indeed. And I don't think this can be separated from the uh, central bank digital currencies uh, that are being rolled out by central banks globally at the moment, or at least they're fairly well down the road towards that because this is the first time that central banks directly uh, will be issuing currencies on a retail basis, basis to us as individuals 
Uh, and uh, that your your green pass is going to be much more than just COVID status in the future. Indeed. And you had no idea what the next slide was. Right? <laughs> Let's move on to that, uh, because this document uh, has tremendous acknowledgement for a vast number of people, too many to to read out on screen who actually helped the process. So here's the first paragraph packed full of good people who have our health and well-being and interests at heart. So here's the second paragraph. Let's highlight all the people who are involved with the World Bank. And what a surprise. We suddenly uh, can move across very smoothly from matters to do with health to matters to do with immense profit and power for the World Bank. So that answers your, uh, your comment there, Mike. Uh, but the um, accolade goes on to yet more people. And then it's right at the end that, uh, of course, we got the statement that the work was founded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, but uh, if you're worried about what's coming, the NHS, NHSX, to be precise, is fully on board. Uh, this is information about using the NHS COVID pass. And of course, this is the wedge driving in the digital data. Uh, but uh, one of our viewers uh, found this and said uh, we should highlight it, which I'm delighted to do, because it's a COVID pass exemption card. Mm. And it says very clearly, I'm exempt from using the NHS COVID pass. And you can get one of those for a mere £5.95 uh, from this organisation. I'll just put the details up. So it's shopdisabilityhorizons.com. So... Uh, there we are. We can see what's coming unless, of course, we say no. Um, Alex, uh, we're completely out of time, but you wanted to end with a very short piece of video. Yes, uh, it's really gratifying that this is an example of a young British artist who says that he's learned a lot from watching UK Column. And he's put his learning into practice. And uh, he's, uh, we've got put on screen, first of all, uh, where you can find him. Uh, there we are. He goes by the artist's name of Lucas Lyon. That's Lucas with a K. Uh, this is from his YouTube channel. The song is simply called 1984. Uh, the 16-bar uh, highlight we're going to play now, because it would be too technically challenging to play the whole piece, I'm afraid. But with permission, the 16-bar highlight now is from the piece called 1984. The 16-bars considers George Orwell and makes the point that Orwell was actually probably underestimating the deviousness of propagandists in uh, the scheme that he otherwise foresaw. All well underestimated the capability of villainy and tyranny, these sick elites are masters of trickery. They're moving wickedly, watching the world bleed as they feed off our misery. Ah, uh, the world's gone quite mad. Yeah, the human psyche has been hijacked. Propaganda bombardments, your mind is the target. They want to deceive and lead us into darkness. Fear is their greatest tool. Fear can turn the brightest minds to fools. Televise endless lies, keep people terrified. That's the way they maintain their rule. Fear is the prison that they want us all to live in. And ever since the beginning, this has been their only mission. Politicians cause division, they're just here to blind our vision. Playing their position to distract us from their masters that are hidden. I think George had a premonition. Seems like it's all coming to fruition. A race against time, now the clock started ticking. The whole thing ends once the people have risen. Well, ex excellent and a brilliant piece of music. Delighted to play that. So thank you to Lucas Lyon. And uh, I just noticed as that uh, particular clip was playing in the chat box, somebody said, well, it's no good saying no, because 
the establishment is not paying attention to no. And I think the answer to that has got to be, that's because enough people, we've, we haven't yet got enough people who are saying no. We need enough people to be saying no, and it stops. So that's a, that's a positive response. We need more people to be saying no and more um, strongly. And I'd like to end by saying that um, over the break period, we've had some very generous donations come in. So I'm going to just mention Ohio. Thank you very much uh, for the individuals in Ohio that have made a donation to the UK column. And also we've had a, another very generous donation from Scotland, which uh, very much appreciated. Absolutely. So thank you for that. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes on the uh, live stream. If you're on uh, the chat box, uh, do stay on the, that page and we will start again in about 10 minutes or so. Uh, and otherwise, we'll be back at uh, 1 p.m. as usual on Friday. And we'll say we're as happy to see the audience as it appears the audience are happy to see us. So it's a two-way thing. Yeah. We'll see you in a few minutes. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.